T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Podcasting from the top of the rocks. This is News on the Rocks with Patty Steele. All right, so if there was ever a time when I was going to drink by myself doing News on the Rocks, this would be it. You have to understand something about me. I love the documentarian Ken Burns the way a lot of people love, I don't know, Mick Jagger, Justin Bieber, or whoever it is they're crazy about. I idolize this guy, and I have for a long time. I think I found him, oh my God, 20-some years ago, listening to the Civil War documentary, which was absolutely mind-bending to me as somebody who is fascinated by the Civil War, adores Lincoln. So when I got an opportunity to have just a few minutes with him, I thought, I'll take what I can get. And um, so you're going to hear a little bit of my interview with the wonderful Ken Burns as he talks primarily about his documentary now out on PBS On Demand about Hemingway. It's funny enough called Hemingway. Believe me, this was a moment for me. So if I sound like a crazy fan, bear with me because I am a crazy fan. Not to mention a little bit of a history geek. Hey, Patty. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, man. I got to tell you, I am your biggest fan. I'm sure you hear that from everybody you talk to. I, I kind of fell in love with your documentary style watching the Civil War because... I am just a, ma- a major fan of, of that historic period. Um, and, and here's the thing for me, I always felt like it's the personal aspect of history that's most fascinating. And I was interested to find out how you came up with that recipe, because a lot of documentaries are very yeah. much about the event and not about the people. Yeah, yeah. well, this is, this is exactly um, um, what I've tried to do from the very, very beginning. My first film was called Brooklyn Bridge, about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, and its its subsequent century of life as a symbol of strength, vitality, ingenuity, and promise. History can be top-down, you know, just the sequence of presidents, punctu- administrations punctuated by wars, or it can be bottom-up as well, mm-hmm. and telling personal lives. I said on that very first film that I felt that I wanted to be an emotional archaeologist, excavating not the dry dates and facts and events that would be helpful for you on your quiz next Tuesday, who wants homework, but, um, but an emotional archaeologist that, that could put these things together and realize how real people live through this. And I don't mean by emotional, sentimental, or nostalgic. I mean higher emotions that compel our lives. So that's that's been, I can't say a recipe because there's no formula for it, but it's how we approach everything. 
Yeah, I mean, I really think we suffer from a terrible lack of um, teaching of history in this country, and I really think that when you begin with with that with the humanity of these people, that's when you begin to really uh, draw people in. Okay, this is me sort of peeking into the interview because I have to prepare you. This is where I really show my true Lincoln geek colors. And guess what I find out? He is a co-Lincoln geek. I'm a, I'm a, I probably have read, n- no, no exaggeration here, several hundred books on Lincoln because I just really wanted to know him as a person. And the yeah, more I delve into it, the more I, I love this person. And I honestly want to make a pitch to you to please do a long-form Lincoln as a human being documentary. Man, yeah, we've been talking about it. We tried to humanize him, and, and Sam Waterston did a great job in our Civil War series yes, of doing that so. and making him available. So, yeah, he's, he's my guy. You know, I, I, I think the world of him and quote a lot of his speeches, I think he got us better than anybody else got us, both the oh. U.S. and us. Yeah, he had this amazing ability to be um, to look at people and learn from other people, but at the same time know how to be decisive in the things that needed to be done. He was just an exceptional human being, and I guess yes, I you know I love 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 the Civil War, but um, just to look at him, I, I'm reading I've been reading lots of books written at the time by people who worked with him in the White House. I mean, even people who were you know, clean, clean the White House, that kind of thing, and um, yeah. who shared their feelings about him. And it is, y- you see that this incredible person, it carried through completely in his personal life as well as the way he ran the country. So that's just my pitch for you to do another deep look at him. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we, we'll come back to him again and again. Okay, I have to peek in again and explain to you why I'm so obsessed with Lincoln as um, this just magical kind of a human being. Again, running the country during the most vicious, bloody, horrifying war in our history, arguably, and yet... He always took time to recognize the people around him. I've been reading a book called Inside the Lincoln White House, and some of the guards talk about the fact that he was so preoccupied that every evening he would walk over to the War Department because presidents could just walk out of the White House in those days, and he'd walk in the dark along through the garden and pass them, and just before he hit the woods in a path that led to the War Department, he would turn around and he'd look at them and he'd say, Oh, forgive me. I hope that you're having a good evening. He was that kind of a person who, despite everything he was going through, always took the time to recognize other people around him, whether they were guards, whether they were people, you know, cleaning up or gardening or whatever it is they were doing around the White House, people that came to visit him. uh, They could be the poorest of the poor, and he would take the time to speak with them and try to answer their needs and their questions. So that's why I love him. That's why I want Ken Burns to do this, and I'm going to beg him every time I talk to him. Hopefully, I'll get to talk to him again. Okay, onward to Hemingway. Uh, Lynn Novick, your co-director on the Hemingway documentary, which I'm just loving, talked about the current trend to sort of dethrone these larger-than-life figures. But in this case, it seems like it's not really about tearing him apart, but rather humanizing him. I, I think that's exactly right. None of us are perfect, and we seem to be in a 
in a culture in which we think there's a big on-off switch, and there's not. And so I think if we look around us, we look inside ourselves, we understand the lack of perfection. And so the fact that, you know, you know Hemingway is a big, macho, kind of toxic, ma- masculine figure, and yet, and he helped invent his own mythology, and, and a lot of it was built on lies and tall tales. At the same time, I think that mythology was built in, in order to mask a great vulnerability and a sensitivity and empathy that he could have. And in fact, he's known as a kind of misogynist, and yet several of his stories and parts of his novels could have been written by a woman, as the novelist Edna O'Brien says in our film. And he, he inhabits, he gets, she said, under the skin. I know, and it's I that androgyny that she yeah. finds so interesting. And we do too. So, and he's also curious about gender fluidity. Here's this big macho guy, you know, brawler and man about town and deep sea fisherman. But he's also curious about what we would call today gender fluidity. It's so interesting. And that's where I think we miss the boat if we think we can go, aha, you're gone, you know, you're dismissed. Uh, we just can't do that. And it turns out that Hemingway, a hundred years before his time, is actually addressing some of the things we're now just be- finding that we're comfortable talking about. Well, it's funny. I'm a huge Hemingway fan as well. In fact, I've kind of lounged around in the gardens in Key West a lot to try to soak it up a bit. And But the thing I never knew about him, and I thought this was fascinating, you guys uh, delved into, was that his mother would sometimes dress him up as a little girl and twin him with his sister and sometimes dress her as a little boy. And maybe that's where that comes from, I would think. You know, Twinning was a not uncommon Victorian custom among, you know, a certain uh, middle class uh, group of people and even uh, wealthier people. Uh, Yes, um, perhaps that had a huge uh, influence on that curiosity. He always wanted his four wives to um, cut their hair short, to look like boys and his to grow long and be their girls. And it's, you know, you're going, wait, this is Ernest Hemingway. He's in Africa shooting big game. He's out catching gigantic marlin. He's up fishing, you know, with men, you know, all of, but it's not. And it's so, to me, that's the stop the presses moment. This is a real man bites dog story. You know, this has like, what? Ernest Hemingway, this toxic masculine figure, is this as well? And uh, so it just, he's endlessly fascinating. In fact, his first wife, Hadley Richardson, said Mm -hmm. that he had so many sides to him that he defied geometry. And that, (laughs) I love that. And I and our team, Jeff Ward, the writer, and Sarah Botstein, the senior producer, we just tried uh, to collect as many of those sides as possible and not. I can't say not judge because we do hold him accountable. There's some things that he did that are unforgivable. Some languages that he used, the way he treated some people is not okay. But at the same time, we take him with the extraordinary output. He is arguably the most important American writer of the 20th century, influencing almost everybody who came after him. And that's worth a pretty good story. And then, of course, it is it devolves or evolves into one of the biggest tragedies you could ever imagine, where you just think at the end of his life he's being chased by all these demons, and the demons catch up. It's interesting because um, I read a novel a while ago called The Paris Wife about his first, about Hadley, and and the the author said 
She was fascinated by a late in life quote from Hemingway in which he said, I wish I had died before I loved anyone but her. And I, yes. and I well, I think. Go ahead. Well, he, the psychology is interesting. He was wounded, severely wounded, probably had PTSD from uh, at 18 years old uh, as an ambulance driver in World War I in Italy. He's nursed back to health by a gal whom he thinks is, she's going to marry him, and she sends him the worst Dear John letter. So he's now completely anxious about this. He meets another gal, Hadley, who's herself kind of beset by a lot of anxieties, and they have this wonderful marriage together, but he strays, and he permits another woman to come into his life, and he has an affair with her, and he eventually leaves Hadley and gets married to her, and leaves her to marry Martha Gellhorn, and leaves Martha Gellhorn, leaves him, and he ends up with his fourth wife, Mary Welsh, until the end of his life. He, in a movable feast, which should be read kind of parallel with the Paris wife, yes, is where he's trying to rewrite everything into a thing in which, you know, Hadley's the heroine and and Pauline is the villain, the second wife, for taking him away, as if he had no agency in it. This big, I mean, they're there because of, of him, and it's a bizarre, and yet it's a beautiful bit of writing. So there's, there's all without, you know, throughout Hemingway, he reinvented the short story, reinvented the novel, reinvented nonfiction writing, and yet, in some ways, the novels are more truthful than some of the nonfiction, even though they're all great literature. It's so interesting to try to come to terms with him and and for every definitive opinion about him in this way the opposite might also be true if you look at it from another point of view yeah i think for all of us it's much more difficult to talk about our deep interior than it is to kind of put maybe two characters in front of us. You can get really deep into that because you don't have to take any kind of personal responsibility. So I guess that's probably where that might have well, come what, from. What, what distinguishes Hemingway, uh, I think, is that he's willing to face, as most great writers do, Tolstoy in a completely different way, mm -hmm. the fact that none of us are getting out of here alive. And that's something we spend yes. most of our lives pretending is not going to happen. And he's got it up close and personal from a very early age. And he never lets go of that curiosity or that reminding. And some of his writing about war, some of his writing oh. about love, are so intimate and so precisely in the moment that they'll endure forever, despite whatever fashions of fiction might come and go. Well, it's, it's funny. It's really hard. Uh, to, as I love to write, and I tend to be way too wordy. It's really difficult to tell a compelling story in really spare language, and he was unmatched in, in simplicity, and yet here he was, this incredibly complex guy. How does that happen? Yeah. Well, the thing is, one of our literary critics, Stephen Cushman, said he dared to impersonate simplicity. Yes, Hemingway himself said he had the iceberg theory of literature, that only one-eighth should show and seven-eighths should be below the surface. So anybody can read Hemingway. An eighth grader can read Hemingway. Uh, it's not that hard. Yeah. And, it, and it's very spare and it's very simple. But in between those words is right. so much meaning that's implied. It's not Tolstoy. It's not a thousand pages of, of complex stuff, but it's getting at exactly what Tolstoy was able to get at, but in other ways, just the fragility of human life, the contradiction of all of us, 
the, the inevitability of our demise, uh, the existential, what do we do with this life, the tragedies that beset, you know, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's great, great novel begins with, you know, all happy families are happy alike and all unhappy families are, are, are unique in that unhappiness. You know, it's all, it's just, yeah. it's exactly what Hemingway's writing about, but Hemingway's doing it in this completely, utterly American, but universal truths work. Want to jump in here and say that, yes, I love Hemingway as a writer for so many reasons, but I got to tell you, you watch this documentary and you're like, oh my God, (laughs) this guy was like, he did a 180 in terms of his moods and the kind of person he was. It is a little bit shocking, but you also have to love his art, you have to love certain things about him, and you have to learn how to separate the horrifying parts. Otherwise, I mean, we give up so many artists, right? So it's really, really worth a listen. Uh, I think a lot of people are torn about their feelings about him, and you see that in the documentary. All right, at this point, um, as happens in these kinds of things, because he's a really popular guy, everybody wants to talk to him. His people came in and went, okay, you're done with Patty Steele. So he had to pause for just a moment, and um, they took him away from me. So that was sort of the wrap-up, but there's a little bit more. So thank you, Patty. This is great. Oh, yeah. I I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this and pretty much everything you've ever done. And um, and I would be delighted if we could speak again sometime. Um, I I just want to tell you, I cried watching you on 60 Minutes. What a beautiful life story you have. Well, as as we say, everybody's got a complicated story. Yeah. Yeah. There are no ordinary people where everybody has something extraordinary about what's going on. Thank you. You're you're a delight. And I'm grateful for you. Okay, don't hate me if I sounded like I was going to rip off my bra and throw it at him if I wore one. Um, I probably would have. (laughs) He is a magnificent person, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about his 60 Minutes interview. Oh, I don't know. I guess last at the end of 2020. Um, It was really amazing because he talked about the loss of his mother at a really pivotal age. I think he was like 11 or 12 years old, um, and he had a a brother, and uh, they adored their mother. She taught them so much about life and history and literature and everything that mattered, and she came down with cancer and died fairly rapidly. And again, he's still kind of a little boy emerging into those tween years, and he had kind of a cool sort of a father um, who really didn't help them process her death. And in fact, she got buried and they never knew where she was. And so many, many, many years later, he and his brother really wanted to find where she had been buried. And after an awful lot of research, which he's really good at, they found out where she was and they had her body moved to a grave where they could visit her. And um, the pain that he went through I think created this super sensitive, incredible person that he is. If you want to know a little bit more about his life, you got to check out a new film on PBS called Ken Burns Here and There. And what I wanted to ask him was what it was like to be the subject of a documentary when you were a documentarian. Didn't get to that question. Maybe I will the next time. Anyway, That's what you should check out. Love, love, love everything he does. And check out the Hemingway documentary. Pretty fascinating. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 